Albert Schweitzer was a leading liberal theologian during the early 20th century. He wrote a famous work entitled The Quest for the Historical Jesus, a book that sought to portray Jesus as merely a person who had overplayed his hand. He wrote this, There is silence all around. The Baptist appears and cries, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus, and in knowledge that he was the coming Son of Man, lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution, which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. It refused to turn, and throws, he throws himself upon it, then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological condition, he has destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward and the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual leader of mankind and to bend history to its purposes is still hanging upon it. Schweitzer, who denied Jesus was the divine Son of God, demonstrates a view that is often very familiar to us. That Jesus was a mere victim to terrible circumstances. Circumstances that were outside of His control, outside of His power to control. As we think about this, is this the Jesus that... That Luke reveals in the Word of God. Is Jesus merely a victim in all of this? Did he overplay his hand with the religious leaders? Is there more in the story to tell than what we hear? I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 22 this morning as we think about this particular aspect of Jesus' ministry. And as you turn there, I want to remind you of where we've come. Over the last several weeks, we have seen the rising resistance towards Jesus by the religious leaders. They will stop at nothing to silence Jesus. And in this final week of ministry on earth, as the cross is looming large, Jesus is preparing His disciples for His final departure. Though they don't understand the significance of the events, it will not come until after the cross and after the resurrection as the Holy Spirit illumines their minds to understand all that they experienced in the, these final days. That they would come to the theological meaning and understanding that will point us forward to the final work of Christ in His death and resurrection. So as we think about this this morning, we're going to think about this final Passover that Jesus eats with his disciples, and to think through the theological meaning and application for our life together as God's people. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. 
he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will we have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they found it, and they went rather, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. And a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table? Or one who serves is not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Friends, as we think about this passage this morning, summarized it in this statement. Through his vicarious death on the cross, Jesus established his kingdom and inaugurated the new covenant with God's people. Jesus died the death that we deserve. It was a vicarious death. He died in the place of others. But his death inaugurated his kingdom. It inaugurated a beginning of a new era of redemptive history known to us as the New Covenant. This morning, we are New Covenant Christians. We want to think this morning what it means to understand the nature of Christ's sacrificial death by looking back to the cross 
and also looking forward to the coming kingdom that Christ promises through the supper. So our passage this morning outlines three aspects of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. So if you take notes, there's three words that I want to hang our thoughts on this morning. Number one, willing. Jesus was a willing sacrifice. In verses 1 through 13, Luke records the narrative in such a way as that the reader understands that Jesus was not the victim of fate, but that Jesus was orchestrating the events leading up to his death, that he was a willing sacrifice. Number two, through the supper, Jesus displays his death, his sacrifice, the second word, vicarious, vicarious. This may be an unfamiliar word, but we're going to think through why the church historically has used this word in the English language, vicarious, to communicate what Jesus is displaying through the supper. And then thirdly, we'll see that Jesus was a selfless sacrifice. That Jesus' death on the cross became a model of what kingdom citizenship looks like. If Jesus is inaugurating a new kingdom, then naturally we understand that there are kingdom people. What does the economy look like in Jesus' kingdom? Who's the greatest and who's the least? Jesus makes clear that the least are the greatest and the greatest are the least. Let's look first in verses 1 through 13 that Jesus was a willing sacrifice. Now, Luke records for us the the evil co-conspirators in the death of Christ. Throughout this text, we see that the religious leaders have had enough with Jesus. They're frustrated with his popularity, and they seek to kill Jesus. Now, I want you to see the context in which Luke paints. More than a dozen times, he keeps referencing that this is the Passover, that the time has come. That the unleavened bread, the day of unleavened bread. Look, look there at verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Now to be clear, those two events are not one and the same, but they run, co- they run side by side. One follows another. And, and so the Israelites, over a period of time, had come to see them as one main event known as the Passover. And it was during this time that the religious leaders would have had the the busiest season in their ministry. They would have been preparing thousands of lambs for sacrifice in order to provide them for the Israelites who were coming to the city. Of course, Jesus was growing in popularity, and we have a whole host of people arriving in Jerusalem from Galilee, praising him and celebrating his successful ministry. The religious leaders have grown frustrated with Jesus. They can't trap him in his words, and they find themselves in a perfect opportunity. As we are told in the text that Judas, one of the insiders, one of the twelve, one of the men who've been ministering with Jesus for the last three years, is going to betray him. He is going to betray his master for money. 
We're not told really what motivated him outside of perhaps greed. Perhaps he was growing frustrated with Jesus, not taking you know, Jerusalem by force. Perhaps he was a zealot in that way. But we see in the text in verse 5 that most likely it was that he was motivated by greed. But as we consider these co-conspirators, we notice also a third one enters the scene. Now this third one has not been heard of since chapter 4. When Jesus began his ministry all the way back in Luke chapter 4, he went out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan. And Luke records there at the end of the temptation that Satan left him until an opportune time. Well, Luke chapter 22 presents itself as an opportune time. Satan understands that this is the chance. He's not confused about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of Man. He's known Jesus all of his life. He knows that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. This is why he tempted him the way he did. But what we see here, the great adversary, not heard of since the wilderness, comes and finds his opportune time to try to kill Jesus, to finally and fully destroy this one who has come to save sinners. Dr. Tom Schreiner helps us as we think about this particular time, why these religious leaders, why Judas is doing this, why, why did they do it? He writes this, At the end of the day, evil is always irrational, senseless, and self-destructive. It promises joy, but delivers sorrow, pain, and death. We are not inherently better than Judas or the religious leaders. We can rightly say that apart from God's grace, we too would easily act as they did. But Luke records all of this against a backdrop of Jesus' actions that follow. It's important to understand that, that Luke is telling a narrative, a story, to Theophilus in order to give him greater faith in the finished work of Christ. Now I want you to see, in all of the scheming, in all of the plotting with these co-conspirators, we see in verses 7 through 13 that divine preparations have already been underway. Some might ask, why did Luke record all of this information in verses 7 through 13 about how the disciples went about preparing the upper room? It seems to be sort of needless information. It's like, okay, they had dinner, that's great. I didn't need to know the details. But if you compare what he's doing with Judas and how Judas is seeking an opportunity to betray him, it makes a lot of sense that Jesus withholds the information from the rest of the disciples. He only tells two out of the three trusted disciples. Look here in the text, we're told, verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus said to Peter and John, go and prepare the Passover for us. It's an undisclosed location and Jesus orchestrates all the events of this particular location in order to prevent Judas from figuring it out and thus derailing what he's going to institute there in the upper room. 
like a great orchestrator, uh, rather conductor in an orchestra. Jesus here is conducting all the various parts in order to demonstrate his control over what is to come. Jesus is not a victim of fate, but the divine Lord who willingly lays down his life for the sheep. Now again, I think it's important as we understand, we've been told several times that this is the Passover season. This is the backdrop to the supper. In fact, you can't rightly understand what Jesus does in the upper room with the supper apart from the Passover. So what is the Passover? Well, the Passover was instituted 1,500 years earlier in the life of Israel. The Bible tells us in Exodus that the Israelites had moved down to Egypt to dwell. And during this time period, they became slaves to Egypt. And God's people had cried out for years, God deliver us, deliver us from our enemies. And God finally raised up Moses who would deliver God's people. And perhaps you've heard of these plagues that God poured out on the Egyptians as as God judged the the so-called gods of the Egyptians. And on the final plague, God promised to send the death angel who would kill every firstborn. But God provided a way of escape from death. And that was the death of something else. A lamb. A spotless lamb who 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 would be killed and slaughtered and its blood would then be painted on the doorpost of the home and the meat would be consumed by the family. And when the death angel would go out to exact God's punishment, if he saw the blood on the doorpost, he would literally pass over the house. This is where we get the word Passover from. Therefore, saving that family from God's wrath. The innocent lamb was condemned so that the guilty might go free. And brothers and sisters, one of the wonderful stories of your Bible is that the Passover lamb would become the sort of beautiful tapestry in which God would paint a picture of redemption. He would display His plan of salvation through the substitute sacrifice of these lambs. And so this was a season in the life of Israel where they would remember looking back at God's deliverance. It was a time of great celebration, of remembering that our God saves. He saves sinners. And this substitutionary atonement is at the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of, as we'll see, of Christianity. Of what the Bible teaches, that that God saves through the death of another. It was what the whole Old Testament sacrificial system was all about. Something dies so that something could live substitute. As we'll see in a moment, the word vicarious. As the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5-7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We've sang songs this morning thinking about Christ being the lamb of God. That Passover lamb was a foreshadow of what Christ would ultimately do on Calvary. He was a willing sacrifice. He came to die in the place of sinners. And throughout this text, we see Jesus orchestrating these events in order to display His will was to do the Father's will. 
In that text, in Hebrews chapter 10, you heard me read, the, the author of Hebrews is preaching a sermon reflecting on these events and the willingness of Jesus to go and die as that Paschal Lamb, that Passover Lamb. Friend, what does this mean for us? Friend, it is a reminder that God is in control of redemption. That Jesus did not fall into some terrible trap, but that He purposed to redeem us. He willingly laid down His life. Brother, sister, do you see God's care for you and for me? That He would go willingly. He knew what was awaiting Him in the hours ahead. The agony of Gethsemane. As God's wrath is being poured out. The agony of the cross. Betrayal. Being stabbed in the back by Peter in his denial. The darkness of death that awaited him in those three days. All of this demonstrates his tremendous care for us. That he would die in our place. Well friends, this leads us to the heart of the text. Which is the institution of the Lord's Supper. As the religious leaders are obsessed with killing the Passover lamb, ironically. Jesus is tucked away in an upper room preparing His disciples to grasp the meaning of everything. And in our text, we are told that Jesus comes and reclines at table with His disciples. We, we ought not picture, and this is why we don't use visual imagery, because this is what leads us astray. We ought not picture Leonardo's picture of the, you know, them all lined up in a row. They didn't eat like that. (laughs) They ate in a circle, laying down in this occasion, reclined with his apostles. And Jesus says there in verse 15 that I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover lamb with you. Why? Because he's about to reveal that this lamb that they have feasted upon since they were little boys is all about Jesus. See, again, I said earlier that this Passover lamb had a looking back and a looking forward. The people of Israel looked back to God's first rescue centuries earlier through that mighty work of His outstretched arm, but it also looked forward to a fresh deliverance as God's great King would once again stretch out His hand to deliver them. You know what song that they would sing during the Passover? Well, they would sing Psalm 118. Hosanna in the highest. They would sing about a king who was coming, who would finally and fully deliver God's people. Why did they sing that? Because they not only looked back to God's past deliverance, but they looked forward to his future deliverance. And Jesus is saying, I am the Passover lamb. I am the one who has come to deliver God's people. Now there were four cups during the Passover that were drank. And Luke mentions two of them him here. One that's drank before and one that's drank after. And a number of things I want you to notice here that he says about this. He says that he will not eat it, un- he will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus here is already preparing his disciples for a delay in his return. We've looked at this in the weeks prior Jesus is preparing them for a long season of drought. 
A season where they will not feast with Jesus again, but they will have a feast together that will remember him. And some of these words are so familiar to us, they sort of wash over without much meaning. Look at verse 17, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said to them, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the, com- the kingdom of God comes. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to withhold myself from this, from this cup in order to create anticipation for this future feast in the kingdom of God. Inherently built into the Lord's Supper is an anticipation, a foretaste, that what we are doing in the, the Lord's Supper is to, is to anticipate, to prepare for, to do a dress rehearsal of something that will come in the future. And Jesus hardwires it into it. It was a meal of anticipation that God would work. And the bread of the Lord's Supper and the cup points to particular aspects of the Lord's work on Calvary. The bread of the Lord's Supper in verse 19 points to Jesus' sacrificial death for us. Notice what he says there, 19. And he took bread, which would have been accustomed part of the meal. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, a number of things we note from this text. Number one, the bread represents the broken body of Jesus. Now, if you are a student of church history, the word is, is that little verb, little to-be verb, is, started a war between Martin Luther and the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli over the, what the meaning of the word is, is. And as descendants, as Baptists of Zwingli, we believe that Jesus here is saying that the word is means represents, the bread represents the broken body of Christ. That it's a symbol pointing. You might say, well, how do we come to that conclusion? Well, it would be quite strange, wouldn't it, to be there sitting with Jesus as he hands you this piece of bread and his physical body being in front of you, for him to say, now this is my literal body. You wouldn't understand that. You wouldn't have came to that conclusion. You would have said, oh, okay, so the bread represents your body. Oh, I get it. You don't need to complicate things here, is it? It's a symbol. It's with a point to Jesus' body broken. As that loaf was broken in two and the, the pieces were ripped off, Jesus was broken. And notice here the word, which is given for you, for your advantage. In other words, Jesus is dying as a vicarious sacrifice. Vicarious meaning in the place of something else. His body hung on a tree in place of you and me. 
where we deserved all of God's wrath, Jesus bore as a wrath-satisfying, sin-bearing substitute. He carried all of God's judgment on human rebellion. He bore the wrath that we deserved. Friends, this is made clear, for example, in the Anglican liturgy, in the Book of Common Prayer, Jesus made there by one oblation of Himself, once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. In other words, it is the redemptive death that has made possible Jesus' liberation of His people from God's judgment and Satan's grip over their lives. He died the death that you deserve. That your sin rightly deserves. And so when we feast on the bread, we're, we're relishing and remembering His atoning sacrifice. But we don't just have bread. We have the cup. The cup of the Lord's Supper points to the blessings of the new covenant through Christ's death. Notice what he goes on to say. And likewise, verse 20, the cup, this would have been the fourth cup, they would have drank. After they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. This dark red wine, symbolizing the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, was the blood that inaugurated the new covenant, he says. All the way back in Exodus, God made a covenant with His people. And that lamb was slain. And the blood was spilled as a sign that the covenant was sealed. We, we use the phrase, a blood covenant, a blood seal, you know, signing with blood. Sort of symbolize in our language that means that we've sealed it, it's delivered, it's finished, it, it's complete. In the same way, Jesus' blood on Calvary is poured out to seal that the new covenant has been inaugurated. Christ's work of atonement initiated this new covenant between God and man in which God promises to give us a new heart. Jesus is using explicit language from the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 31 in verses 31 through 34, God, through the, through the prophet Jeremiah, promised a new covenant. This new covenant wouldn't be like the old covenant. It would be a different covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. For I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sins no more. Jesus is declaring by pouring out this wine, a wine of celebration, a foretaste of what God was going to do through the Passover of God's future deliverance. 
Jesus is declaring that I am the Passover lamb who was slain in order to inaugurate this new covenant. Jesus isn't merely starting a new ritual. He's signing on the line. His signature with his blood saying that I have begun this new work. We sing often these words, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He, full atonement can it be, hallelujah, what a Savior. The Lord's Supper is done perpetually in remembrance of Jesus. It is a memorial, not memorializing His death that he's dead buried somewhere. But memorializing what his death accomplished and what his new life inaugurates through the resurrection. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to savor Christ. To savor his death on Calvary for our sin. Guilty, vile, helpless we. That's who we are. Sinners destined to hell, but God has given us a sacrifice and we are recipients of full atonement. Use this as an opportunity each month as we partake together to savor your Savior. To be reminded of that broken body which was for your sin and that shed blood that inaugurated a new kingdom that you are members of, that you are citizens in. I want you to see also in this text the explicit command. Look with me again at the text. Maybe you've never noticed this before. Verse 19. This is my body which is given for you. You you know those words. And then he says this. Do this in remembrance of me. This is a command, isn't it? Jesus is commanding his disciples to do this. I believe that this is one of the most explicit commands in your Bible to Christians to gather with Christians on the Lord's Day. So the next time you meet a Christian who says, I don't need the church in order to follow Jesus, take him here. Really? You don't? Apparently, Jesus thought you did. When he says, do this, that is the Lord's Supper, not on your own, but together with with the people of God, you see. This is, I believe, one of the strongest arguments. And I'm not alone in this. Charles Spurgeon, as he led the church the tabernacle there in London. Over 5,000 members, thousands more gathering on the Lord's Day. The elders of the church had a practice. They would issue communion tokens to the members of the church. When you became a member after going through a membership interview, membership class, you were voted into membership by the church, you would receive 12 membership tokens. And you would have to turn in these tickets or tokens at the time that they did communion. 
You could not partake communion without one of these tokens. So if you were visiting, perhaps you were traveling, doing business in London, you would have to go through a membership process, not necessarily join the church, but be interviewed by an elder of the church before you were allowed to take communion. This is how they fenced the table. But I mention this practice to you, not so much because we're going to do it, but it's the way the elders used it to shepherd the sheep. What they would do is they would pull all these tokens together and they would look and see who hadn't been taking communion, who hadn't been turning in their tickets. If they weren't turning in their tickets, they hadn't been there on the Lord's Day in order to participate in communion. And so the elders would then go and pursue them and call them to repentance and faith and say, Jesus commands you to do this in remembrance of me. And often cases these would be opportunities for the elders to bring back strange sheep. It's a reminder to us that this is commanded by Jesus. It's not optional. Friends, we ought to put a priority in our life to gather with God's people regularly and particularly on the days we participate and gather for the Lord's Supper. But notice also, as I mentioned earlier, that the Supper is eaten with anticipation. Long for the day of redemption. Jesus here has instituted this in such a way, and and of course in the text that I often use from 1 Corinthians. I read this often because I think it's so helpful. Paul just puts it all together for us nice and neatly in a little package for us. He says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You see? What we are doing here is we are eating with anticipation of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are declaring the gospel and we are anticipating the consummation of the gospel at the return of King Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the gospel reminds us in the supper of our need for Christ. It takes the attention off of us. I've often said it's like a spiritual checkup. To see whether or not we've been following Christ. Have I been living the way Christ calls me to live? Or have I been living in active rebellion against Him? It reminds us of the the eternal need for Jesus and His sacrifice. And gives us a, a continual, perpetual perspective. And focus on the need of the gospel. In short, brothers and sisters, it is a reminder that we never outgrow the gospel. We never come to a period in our walk with Christ where we do not need the atoning work of Christ. Though the gospel sustains us. Lastly, and very quickly, in all of the pomp of the, of the Passover, in all of what Jesus is displaying that the Passover points to, You've got to love where his disciples land. You've got one who's going to betray. And Jesus says to them, woe to him. But we see even again in verse 22, for the Son of Man goes, it has been determined, predestined. That's what that word is, predestined. Jesus was predestined to die on Calvary's cross. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. In other words, Judas is morally responsible, though Satan entered him. 
And notice what the disciples do. you, you got to love them. Verse 23, they began to question with one another which one who was going to betray. This isn't the point of the text, but let me just remind you of this truth. Sometimes you can't tell the difference between a sheep and a goat. They looked around at each other. In other words, it wasn't obvious to them that Judas was going to betray. It's a reminder to each of us that we must guard our hearts and be watchful. We don't know when there's wolves among us. Well, and in this occasion, we're told that the disciples move quickly from worrying about who was going to betray to who was the best and most awesomest of the group. Now, naturally, Jesus is talking about kingdoms and and all these wonderful things that are going to come. And what happens? Well, they begin to say, hey, Jesus is a king. He's got a kingdom. Hey, we're all really close to Jesus, right? We've all been hanging out with him. We must be the greatest, And they begin to argue with one another, and Luke doesn't record the full argument. We don't have time to look at it, but there's much more to this argument um, as the the brothers begin to argue with one another. But but nonetheless, we see this argument arise, and Jesus comes along his disciples, as he does throughout, and he pastorally leads them, and he says, you all are thinking about this all wrong. You're worried about who's the greatest, but you, you don't understand who you are in God's economy. And Jesus here models himself. He says, who's the greatest? The guy who's sitting at the table eating or the guy who's serving? The disciples, of course, the guy sitting at the table. I mean, who are waiters? Waiters are nothing more than slaves in this economy. They were the lowest of low. This is the most despised job anybody could have. Waiting on tables? Who wants to do that job? And Jesus says, what have I been doing? I've been waiting on tables. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give, him li- give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is modeling for his disciples what the kingdom economy is going to look like. You know, so often we divorce the Lord's Supper from this text, and I think wrongly so. But the Apostle Paul uses this text in his own way to make explicit that service, serving those around you, is what is a priority in the supper. That not only is it an occasion to remember what Christ did for you, but what he calls you to in selfless sacrifice for others. You might say, where does that come from? Well, friend, maybe you need to read your Bible in context, maybe. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 again. What was going on in Corinth? What was the occasion by which he wrote these letters? Well, the rich were getting drunk at dinner before they took the Lord's Supper. Well, isn't that a sight? You thought our church had some issues. When they came together, it was an occasion for the rich to display their power and wealth and the poor to be sort of cast aside. And the Apostle Paul warns them to to examine themselves lest they eat and drink in an unworthy manner. And we heard it so beautifully articulated by one of our deacons, Josh, as he prayed earlier about how the Lord's Supper is an occasion for us to confess when we have been unreconciled with a brother or sister. That in fact, we eat unworthily when there's someone we've not reconciled with in this congregation. This is what Jesus is occasioning here. 
Y'all are worried about who's the greatest, who's the, who's the best, but it's the least that are the greatest, not the greatest. They're the least. That's why Jesus says, rather let the great among you become the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. J.C. Ryle writes this, the hero in Christ's army is not the man who has rank and title and dignity and chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. It is the man who looks not on his own things, but the things of others. It is the man who is, the kind, who is kind to all, tender to all, thoughtful for all, the hand to help all, the heart to feel for all. Is the man who spends and is spent to make the vice and misery of worldly lust less, to bind up the brokenhearted, to befriend the friendless, to cheer the sorrowful, to enlighten the ignorant, to raise the poor. This is truly a great man in the eyes of God. The world may ridicule his labors and deny the sincerity of his motives, but while the world is sneering, God is pleased. The man who is walking most closely in the steps of Christ. Brothers and sisters, do we, do we simply find this an occasion to be great or to be little? Let us look to Christ's selfless sacrifice as a picture of what we desire for leaders in this church. Men and women who are not here to be served, but to serve. Through Christ's vicarious death on the cross, Jesus establishes His kingdom. A kingdom people who are marked by humility and selflessness. He inaugurated a new covenant through this supper as it points to his sacrificial death and the new kingdom that is to come. Before most weddings, couples go through a dress rehearsal the night before to make sure that everything is in order, that everyone is in their proper places, that the groomsmen and the bridesmen know how to walk in and where to go, and make sure the music is queued up just right and ensure that everyone says and does exactly what they want. In every wedding that I've ever done, there's a sense of anticipation that night before. We don't even mention certain words because we, we're going through a dress rehearsal, but we don't, we don't want to make it exactly like what we're going to do the next day. We want to leave a, a sense of palpable expectation and anticipation of their union before God. And brothers and sisters, what we do each month in taking and participating in the Lord's Supper is nothing more than a dress rehearsal for the great marriage supper of the Lamb. What we do in feasting on the bread and drinking the cup is anticipate a day coming very soon when we shall gather around the table with all the saints past, present, and future, and we will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Apostle John got a glimpse of this supper, and he says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Brothers and sisters, 
you are in the Bible. If you are in Christ Jesus this morning, this is a reference to you and to me. They're dressed in righteous robes, perfect and spotless before the Lamb of God. And so this morning, as we feast, let us feast with anticipation that day when we shall all feast together for His glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, oh, how we long for the day of Christ's return. Even now as we relish in the gospel that has saved sinners like us, may we look to the cross and savor what Christ has accomplished. In inaugurating a new covenant where Your Spirit dwells within us and where we shall be with You forevermore. May we be reminded that once we were Your enemy, but now we have been welcomed to Your table. We are sons and daughters of the King. Oh Father, may we look with humility and selflessness as we look to the finished work of Christ. It is for your glory and our good in Christ's name we pray.